0: you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 23. We want to finish out this chapter this morning, verses uh, 37 through 39. Jesus' last words to Israel is what I've titled the message, and so let's uh, let's say a word of prayer. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Minister to our hearts. Help us to glean from the text those things that you would have for us this morning, that which you would have us to see. So help me to teach accurately and clearly in a way that brings glory to you and and edifies your people. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in Matthew, and we've been working our way through verse by verse, as I have taught for 37 years now. But uh, in Matthew 23, uh, the theme of Matthew is Christ the King, and we are in that section finishing it out here, chapters 21 through 23, the formal rejection of the King. Well, for years, the tension had been mounting between Israel's religious leaders and the Lord Jesus Christ. These religious leaders like to dominate uh, and be in the dominating position over God's people. They they really like lording it over. And that's really what I see that one of their great sins being is lording it over the people in a a self-righteous way. So they like lording it over them and using religion, really, for selfish purposes. Well, in contrast was the true Lord the Lord Jesus Christ, and ironically, as Lord, he was here to serve. The religious leaders had religion, legalistic religion, but Jesus was reality. As Jesus gained in popularity among the common people, the religious leaders felt more and more threatened, and they determined, therefore, to destroy Jesus. They were all out to get him. Well, it came to a head on what we call Passion Week, the last uh, week of Christ's earthly ministry culminating in the crucifixion. Well, uh, and that's where we are in our study. On Sunday, there was tension over the triumphal entry as the Pharisees called on Jesus to rebuke those who were saying to him, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then on Monday... When Jesus drove the money changers and the merchants out of the temple, followed by Jesus healing the blind and the lame in the temple, and the children crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David, the religious leaders were indignant. On Tuesday, there was a series of challenges put forth to Jesus at the temple by the religious leaders. They first challenged his authority to do these things. What gives you the right to do these things? Jesus then responded with a series of three parables in chapter 21 and chapter 22, indicting these religious leaders in which the chief priests and the Pharisees, quote, perceived that he was speaking of them. And in this, they were right. Then the religious leaders tried to entrap Jesus with a series of gotcha questions. They asked him about taxes. That's always dangerous. Uh, A hypothetical question about marriage. And then about the greatest commandment. And in each case, Jesus silenced them with the profound wisdom of his answers. Well, then it was Jesus' turn, and he asked them about Psalm 110, which all readily acknowledged was a Messianic psalm. He asked them how David could call the son of David his Lord And after that, it says, no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. Jesus wins, as he always does. But Jesus was not done with them. Jesus then proceeded in an extended treatment in Matthew 23 to pronounce seven woe judgments on the scribes and the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. Uh, So by way of review, uh, note, uh, we got... All these woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. All the way through, hypocrites. Uh, Hypocrites, 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 hypocrites. This is the the refrain. Uh, An outline of what we are studying here in Matthew 23. Maybe not. Okay, take my word for it. Uh, Outline, we got the first 12 verses. uh, Jesus exposes the scribes and the Pharisees. And then in verses 13 through 36, we have the seven woe judgments pronounced on them, as we have already noted. And then we come to the end of the chapter in verses 37 through 39, where we are this morning, where we have the fate of Jerusalem pronounced. Well, this brings us to the end of the chapter, which ends on a lament by Christ over Jerusalem. Uh, Matthew 23, which is one of the most severe chapters in the Bible, ends on a lament of pathos evoking pity or or sadness, in effect. Uh, This shows that the woes were not spoken out of hatred. In spite of everything, Jesus still loved and cared for them and grieved over their rebellion. Someone has said you're only qualified to speak of severe judgment if you do so with tears. The story is told of William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. Two workers were very discouraged, and they wrote to him... Uh, wanting to do something about it, very discouraged and nothing was happening. And uh, Booth sent a telegram back with two words, try tears, try tears. Jeremiah the prophet wrote some of the strongest things recorded in the Old Testament scriptures. And from Jeremiah chapter 2 through chapter 45, he warned of coming judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. I mean, when I taught through Jeremiah, by the time we got done, people were almost begging me to please teach something else. And so I did. I went to Lamentations. (laughs) 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 Jeremiah prophesied of the coming Babylonian captivity. He prophesied of the coming fall of Jerusalem. And yet he is known as the weeping prophet, as he also wrote the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah was a tender-hearted prophet who was called by God to deliver one of the harshest messages in the Bible. And yet he did it through tears of love. This is also the example of Christ as seen here in Matthew 23, 37 through 39. Now last words are important words and Matthew 23, 37 through 39 represents Christ's last recorded public words to Israel. Now he didn't go out bitter but rather with a lament of pathos. Verse 37, Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven. 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Now, repeating the name Jerusalem, as in, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, signifies deep emotion. We see Jesus doing this on occasion, such as when he said to Martha, 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 as he corrected her regarding the the one thing, the most important thing. Or when he said to Simon, 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 as uh, Peter was full of himself and self-confidence. And again, when he said to the misguided Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We also see a very deeply uh, the, the sense here when David wept over his rebel son Absalom who died in his folly, saying, oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom. So it it does express deep uh, pathos, and and really, in this case, deep lament. Well, just a couple of days before this, on Sunday, as Jesus approached the city of Jerusalem in what is called the Triumphal Entry, which is really yet to come, but uh, it is often, we call it the Triumphal Entry, uh, this was his response. In uh, Luke 19, Now as he drew near, he saw the city. We're talking about Jerusalem. As he drew near, he he saw the city and he wept over it. And, And why? Well, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will leave in you, they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Here the Messiah is coming to you, and they didn't appreciate it. Ed Glasscock says, and the thing I really want to point out there is he, is he wept over it. He wept over it. Ed Glasscock says, The church must be challenged to love even those who reject Christ and blaspheme him having the same compassion as Jesus himself. You know, we are to care about the lost. We are not just to write them on and say, well, you're on your way to hell, I'm sorry. Uh, We should care. Now, Jerusalem has a special place in the heart of God. Israel is said to be the epicenter of the world. And the epicenter of Israel is Jerusalem. And the epicenter of Jerusalem is the Temple Mount. Consider these biblical facts about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is named more than any other city in the scripture, far more. Uh, You know the next uh, most named city in the Bible is Babylon, about 300 times. But Jerusalem is mentioned 817 times, by one count. Jerusalem is positioned in the center of the world. Jerusalem is called the apple of God's eye. It is called the city of the great king, which is our text for tonight. Uh, Jerusalem will be called the throne of the Lord in the kingdom. Jerusalem is spoken of in reference to the God of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will be fought against by all the nations of the world in the last day. So last day's prophecy swirls around two major themes, namely the Messiah and Israel. And within Israel, Jerusalem is prominent. Jerusalem is called by the Jews the eternal capital of Israel. And as such, Jerusalem is representative of the whole of Israel. So goes Jerusalem, so goes the nation of Israel. Now, God has glorious plans for Jerusalem in the future. But up to this point, it has been a major disappointment in history. You see, Jerusalem literally means city of peace. But Jesus here described it as, quote, one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. At this point, it stood for anything but peace. Instead, it had become a killer city. And in particular, it was known for killing God's messengers who came with a message from God. That was not well received by Jerusalem, which was really the headquarters, the capital of the nation, the headquarters of the religious leaders. Jerusalem really represented direction and guidance and leadership for the entire nation. It was the city of God, but it was consistently rejecting God's servants. Jerusalem at this point really had a problem with God. To reject God's messengers is really to reject the God behind them who has sent them. Well, Jesus had just previously mentioned how Israel epitomized the killer spirit that had killed God's righteous people from Abel to Zechariah, as seen in verse 35. Well, as Jesus indicated in the parable of the vineyard grower in chapter 21, the religious leaders from Jerusalem, the representatives of the people, had killed the servants, prophets, sent to them, and they were also going to kill the son. And then, as Jesus had just indicated, they will go on to persecute and kill prophets, wise men, and scribes that he is sending to them. Note, both kills and stones are in the present tense, indicating ongoing activity. Truly, this murderous pattern of God's servants was the history of religious Israel, which was headquartered in Jerusalem. Well, in spite of their killer rebellion, Jesus says, how often I wanted to gather your children together. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing Here Jesus spells out the problem. And it wasn't him. I take it Jesus as the God-man, as God, is speaking in relation to the long-term pattern of rebellion in the nation of Israel, as he has just cited previously. Down through the years, Jesus as God had wanted to draw them close and be Israel's protector. But consistently, they were unwilling. And certainly this was true in his earthly ministry as well. When Jesus says, I wanted, God's desire is reflected in the ongoing ministry of the many prophets who were sent to Israel, calling them to get right with God, calling them to repentance. We find in Jeremiah 7, 25-26, since the day your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, God is speaking. I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they did not obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. Stiff-necked people wouldn't listen. They did worse than their fathers. The imagery of God providing protection under his wings is often used in reference to God, to his protection uh, for his own in the Old Testament. Uh, Especially we see this in the Psalms. Psalm 36, 7. How precious is your loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. So imagery is used here. And again, we had read for us Psalm 91.4, He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. So this imagery is a picture of refuge, of a safe place of protection. Now, in the Old Testament, the idea of coming to trust in God, or what we might call saving faith, is spoken of in terms of placing oneself under the wings of God for refuge. As such, it is a beautiful picture of God honoring trust. Uh, Ruth, you probably won't have a better example than in Ruth chapter 2. Uh, the Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. It's a picture of trust, a picture of saving faith. Now, it is noteworthy that Christ here himself is assuming the position of God as only he can ultimately provide this sort of refuge as seen in the Old Testament scriptures. By applying scripture to himself in this way, in desiring to be the sovereign protector of God's people, Jesus in effect was claiming to be God. Now again, it would seem that in saying how often Jesus is looking back over Israel's history and identifying himself with God's transcendent historical perspective, the desire to care for God's people. Uh, Holman Christian Study Bible says by rejecting Jesus, Jerusalem rejected God's protection. The image implies Jesus' identity as Yahweh, and it does. Uh, We as Bible believers believe in the Trinity, uh, Father God, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, As Sovereign Lord, Jesus wanted to protect them and prevent any harm from coming to them. But alas, since they would not have it, they would reap the consequences of being forsaken by God and not having his protection, at least on some level. So note uh, the contrast here. Jesus says, how often I wanted, I wanted to bring you under my, my protection. But you were not willing. Speaking to Jerusalem, representative of the nation of Israel. Paul in Romans 10 says essentially the same thing, same concept as he's quoting here. But to Israel he says, All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I mean, it's not like God wasn't willing. It's not like the invitation wasn't there. It was. The problem was their disobedience, their contrariness, their unwillingness. This long-term consistent rebellion against God's gracious invitation has characterized Israel as led by her religious leaders and really continues on even to this very day. For good reason, over and over, they are referred to as a stiff-necked people. Now, the opposite of being stiff-necked is to be yielded to God. This was willful rebellion for which there was no excuse. God can't be blamed for this. The onus was squarely on them and human responsibility. They were not willing. John MacArthur says, Nothing in Scripture is more certain than the truth that God is sovereign over all things. But God's word nowhere teaches determinism, as this verse makes clear. God was abundantly willing for Israel and all men to receive and follow his son. But most of them were unwilling. They did not turn from Christ because of fate, but solely because of their own unwillingness. When a person rejects Christ, it is never God's desire or God's fault, but always his own. Amen to that. That's what I see the scripture teaching. Ezekiel thirty three eleven Say to them as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. There's no pleasure in the... So what, so what does God want? But that the wicked turn from his evil way and live. God puts the onus on personal responsibility. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? And so Jesus says, they were unwilling. So Jesus says, see, your house is left to you desolate. Here are the consequences of not being willing to take refuge in the Lord. So much is said here in this short little verse. It is profoundly sobering and has proven true in Israel's experience. Now, commentators grapple with what house here specifically means, and various ideas are put forward, including these. Uh, The Davidic dynasty, Israel as a nation, the city of Jerusalem, or the temple. Now, most probably, the combination of the temple and the city of Jerusalem are in view. But in truth, I think all of these are very closely related And what affects the temple affects Jerusalem. And what affects Jerusalem affects the nation. And what affects the nation affects the Davidic dynasty. Jesus has just said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. But this is all happening at the temple, which was the nerve center of the city. And beyond that, Jerusalem, as the capital of Israel, represents the nation as a whole. And then right here, Jesus, the rightful Davidic king of Israel, was being rejected. So I tend to think that the essence of what we have here is a package that ties into all four of these realities. Both the city of Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in 70 AD, which had a desolating effect on the entire nation. Now the word desolate, when he says your house is left to you desolate, the word desolate means to be barren, empty, abandoned, or left alone. And it can have the sense of abandon to enemies, which would seem to be the case here. Since the nation, led by its religious leaders, would not have Jesus, would not come to him on his terms, accepting him for who he is, then he would leave the temple site, and with him God's hand of protection would be removed. Thus they would be in a condition of desolation. And this is not a new concept. We have in the Old Testament, again, here in the the book of Jeremiah, 12, verse 7, I have forsaken my house. I have left my heritage. I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. Note a few examples in the Old Testament. Uh, The sons of Eli, the priest in the Old Testament, were very wicked and corrupt. And in that context, God allowed the Ark of the Covenant, which uniquely symbolized God's presence, to be taken by the Philistines. And the response was, Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed. Just prior to the fall of Jerusalem and the temple, in 586 BC, Ezekiel chapter 8 through 11 chronicles the departure of, of God's glory. It is pictured as first leaving the most holy place, chapter 8, and then proceeding to the threshold of the temple, chapter 10, and then to the eastern gate, and then finally to the Mount of Olives on the east side of the city, chapter 11. The glory having departed allowed the Babylonians then to come in and destroy both the city and the temple. In Christ, the glory of God was supremely on display. And when he departed from the temple, the glory of God went with him in that sense. Thus, once again, protection was removed. And according to the pattern, having left the temple, he proceeded to the Mount of Olives. And in fact, later ascended to heaven from there and will one day return and step down on the Mount of Olives as found in Zechariah 14. Well, having abandoned the temple, which the Lord called my house in chapter twenty one thirteen. He now calls your house, which is left to them in desolation, unprotected, alone, unprotected, independent of the protection provided in Jesus. Your house left to you desolate indicates coming desolation for Jerusalem, which came to be fully realized with the destruction of the city by the Romans in AD 70. At that time, many Jews were crucified. They crucified 500 of them at a time. It was so bad that the Romans actually ran out of wood. Some Jews on the run were cut open alive as they were looking for gold that they suspected the Jews had swallowed. The temple was burned to the ground, the temple completely destroyed, the city completely destroyed. It is estimated that somewhere between 1.1 and 1.3 million Jews were killed in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. Well, when the siege was all over, the Romans had 97,000 captives on their hands. They proceeded to kill the old and the sick and then put the healthy and the strong in the Roman general Titus' triumphal return to Rome. It's time to celebrate now, you know, if you're a Roman. On return home, the general received a triumphal parade through the city of Rome, ending up at the capital. First came the state officials and the Roman Senate. Then came the trumpeters. This was followed by those carrying the spoils taken in battle. Then followed a white bull, which would be sacrificed in the general's honor. Then came the Jewish captives in chains, many of whom would shortly be executed. Then came the musicians playing a variety of instruments, and along the sides would walk incense bearers and pre-swinging censers with the burning of sweet-smelling incense. After that came the general himself, who stood in a chariot drawn by four horses. He was clad in royal purple, and he had a scepter in his hand and a crown on his head. I mean, this was his day. Following him were the members of his family, and behind them was the army, all decorated up in their finest, shouting, Triumph! 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 To be in this train of triumph was the greatest of honors. But to be one of these Jewish captives was to experience the greatest of horrors. Indeed, their house was left to them desolate. To be God-forsaken is hell, quote-unquote. The last lone holdout for the Jews on this occasion was Masada. It happened at Masada. This was a great place of refuge built by Herod the Great, which he built as a secure place of security in case of revolt against him. Masada is a fortress built way high up. Had a number of barracks, armories, defense structures and huge storehouses of water and food. And the only way up to the top of Masada was a narrow, what they call, snake path, which made the fortress very easy to defend from anyone attacking from below. It's quite a place. I've been there. Um, you can see the little, uh, you know, the little snake path here up. It's much more refined now, of course. <laughs> you know, they made it for tourists to walk up here. Uh, but you can see it's a high fortress, is what it is, way up high. Once you get up there, you know, they got all kinds of, you know, places and little, you know, store, storage places and, and so forth up there. Now, in the revolt against Rome, uh, a large group of Jewish zealots congregated at Masada, last holdout. Now, it took a while for the Romans to get to them. Because, again, it wasn't easy to get there. Using slaves, the Romans built a huge siege ramp up the backside of the mountain. And it took several months to do this. But finally, the Romans breached the fortress only to find a ghastly scene. The zealots, you see, chose death over capture and committed mass suicide. In total, 953 men, women, and children died in defiance of Rome. Now, there was a couple of women and a few children that were hidden away. That's how we know about uh, some of the details. But uh, indeed, their house was left to them desolate. A footnote here. In 1948, Israel, after almost 1,900 years of not being a nation, once again became a nation. The fall of Masada still lingers in Jewish consciousness. As part of defending their country, all Israeli men and women have to now serve in the Israeli Defense Forces. Upon their completion of basic training, the new IDF soldiers climb the snake path to Masada at night and are sworn in during a torch-lit ceremony at the top of Masada. Their final declaration of the night before descending the mountain as full-fledged soldiers is, quote, Masada shall not fall again. Well, after the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, a man by the name of Bar Kokhba led a final attempt at revolt against Rome in A.D. 132. This revolt was totally crushed in 135. Then Rome banished all Jews from the land completely. They changed the name of the land to Palestine in honor of the Jews' historic foes, the Philistines. And they changed the name of Jerusalem to Elia Capitolina. It's kind of a nice ring, right? I don't think so, but anyway. Indeed, though, their house was left to them desolate. Even though back in their land today, As the Bible says, they will come back in blindness in the latter days. That's where they are. Even so, still the times of the Gentiles continue, and the Temple Mount, the Temple Mount, is still run by Gentiles, by the Muslims, with the Dome of the Rock still donning the top of it. Every summer, the Jews have a holiday called Tisha Ba'av which is Hebrew for the ninth day of the month of Av. It more simply is referred to as the ninth of Av. You see, on this day, in 586 BC, their first temple was destroyed. On this exact same day, in AD 70, their second temple was destroyed. And also on this exact same date, in AD 135, the Romans killed Bar Kokhba and crush the Jewish revolt once and for all. So on this date, the 9th of Av, the Jews every year commemorate these dates of tragedy. It's a day of sadness and denial of physical pleasures. The book of Lamentations is read. Indeed, the house of Israel was left to them desolate, and the effects continue to this day. On October 1st, 2015, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Is he the Prime Minister again? I think he's close if he's not there. But anyway, uh, but on this date, he addressed the General Assembly of the United Nations, and he was very upset. He was very bothered by the absence of criticism of Iranian death threats against Israel. Iran constantly to this day is threatening to wipe Israel off the map. And Netanyahu, Netanyahu said to the assembly of nations, quote, If Iran's terror proxies were firing thousands of rockets at your cities, perhaps you'd have a more, be more measured in your praise. And this built to his climactic line, Quote, And yet the response from every one of you here is utter silence, deafening silence. Benjamin Netanyahu then proceeded to glare in silence at the UN delegates for 45 seconds to communicate his displeasure for their deafening silence. Such are the consequences of being all alone in the times of the Gentiles, given over to desolation, and the Jews feel the effects of that to this very day. Indeed, their house has been left to them desolate, and the worst of all is yet to come. Literally, it builds in the end times to the world versus Israel, as noted in the prophets. A footnote here. Even though the nation of Israel has experienced severe discipline, yet God has been faithful to preserve them as a nation. And that too is in keeping with his word. Jeremiah 30. For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you. But I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. Although the Jews have suffered terribly in their time of desolation, yet God has always had a remnant of them who come to true faith, and so it is today as well. And he continues to preserve them as a people in spite of themselves. Last day's prophecy must be fulfilled, of which Israel is central. Well, verse 39, For I say to you, You shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Note the flow of thought here. They were not willing to accept Christ, so they were left desolate, which involves the removal of Christ from the scene, leaving them alone to fend for themselves. Christ, the source of blessing, was going off the scene. In a matter of three short days, he would be gone, and they would see him no more during this whole time of coming desolation. This was fulfilled to the letter. Everything here was fulfilled to the letter. After his resurrection, you see, no unbelievers either saw nor had any interaction with him. They didn't see him anymore. And this is what uh, Peter brings out in Acts chapter 10. Speaking of Jesus, him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, qualified, not to all the people, Not to all the people. He showed him openly, but not to everybody. But to witnesses chosen before by God. Even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Jesus said to Israel, you won't see him anywhere. And they didn't. The only exception was those special chosen witnesses. What Jesus had to say was fulfilled literally to the letter. Israel saw him no more after his resurrection. They heard about him through the apostolic testimony. They saw the empty grave. Where did he go? Let's find him. They couldn't find him. But they heard about him. They no longer saw him, but the apostolic witness was there. And that's true to this very day. This pattern of not seeing Jesus and the continuing experience of desolation continues on throughout the time when Jesus is gone, as also prophesied in Daniel 9.26. You see, in Daniel 9.26, after the crucifixion, the prophet Daniel predicted there would be this large gap period. And in this gap period, there would be constant desolation. This gap period or parenthesis time is between the time of the triumphal entry when Christ was rejected by the nation's leaders and the seven-year tribulation period. This gap period is defined by ongoing desolations for Israel. Note the language here very carefully. Daniel 9, 26. And after 62 weeks, plus seven, as we note from the previous verse, an anointed one shall be cut off. And have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come, and the the prince to come, here's the Antichrist, uh, the people of of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That was the Romans in 70 AD. It shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. He's talking about this parenthesis period, this gap period that really overlaps with what we know as the church age now. Let me diagram it for you. Uh, After, oh, well, did you get it? There we go. Uh, (laughs) So uh, we are now here in the church age and, and following that triumphal entry was the cross. Jesus was cut off. This is all happening in the gap period here. And so during this whole time, largely related to the church age, is, this, is desolations are determined. And, and that will continue on during this entire gap period. Now during this entire gap period, Jesus is gone, and the experience of Israel will be ongoing desolations. But note it very carefully. This time of desolation will not go on forever, only until Israel says to Jesus, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This quote comes from the Messianic Psalm of Psalm 118 and verse 26. We read there, blessed is he, Messianic, Messianic Psalm, talking about the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Now when it says blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that was clearly recognized as a Messianic designation. No debate there. It's a praise declaration and recognition of the Messiah who comes in the power and authority of God. To come in the name of the Lord is to come representing him and fulfilling God's plan. And this is what the Messiah will do at his second coming. And Israel will finally recognize that Jesus is this person. He is the Messiah. Finally, they will see him as the fulfillment of all the Messianic prophecies. And will bless or praise him for who he is. In the triumphal entry, the multitude, full of emotionalism, chanted, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But for the most part, they didn't really understand or appreciate who Jesus truly was. It was all just a bunch of emotional and messianic hype that really missed the point. Crowds can be so fickle. But there will come a time when Israel finally gets it. It's kind of hard to believe today. You, you realize that most Jews are secular in their orientation. Huge majority, secular Jews. Yeah, they are Jewish in culture. But in terms of God, they, nothing to do with God. But there will come a time when that changes. Finally, they will come to truly appreciate and recognize Jesus as their true Messiah. And then Israel will see him again. Then they will see him. Really what we have outlined here is the big picture of what will happen with Israel. They will experience desolation climaxing in the ultimate time of tribulation, which will bring them to faith in Christ. And then upon recognizing Jesus as their Messiah, he will come to their rescue. The whole nations, all the, the whole world will be rallied against Jerusalem. And they will call out to Jesus, recognizing him, and he will come to their rescue. And then they will see him. Zechariah 12 predicts I will pour out, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me, whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn, Israel will be broken over what they have done in rejecting their Messiah as they finally come to appreciate and recognize him for who he is. This is what Isaiah 53 is really all about. Now Peter indicated that the condition for Israel's restoration is that they must first come to repentance and then they will see the blessing of God in the coming of Christ. He spelled this out. He's talking to Jews here in Acts chapter 3, where he says, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And then he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. The prerequisite for the second coming of Christ in blessing for Israel is that they as a nation must first come to repentance, whereby they recognize Jesus and truly accept him as their Messiah. Note, Jesus did not say unless. He did not say unless, but rather until. Making this a certain reality that in due time will come to pass. And Paul also recognizes this. Romans chapter 11, he says, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Be aware of God's plan. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion. Like we are the church, the Jews, uh, you know, God's done with them and it's all about us. Be careful, he says, lest you be wise in your own opinion. And here's what you need to understand. The blindness in part it's happened to Israel. You know, still a few Jews getting saved. It's not total. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Church is largely Gentile. And when that's completed, what's going to happen? And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is yet to be. Don't be ignorant. Blindness defines Israel in part. But only until. Eventually Israel will come to repentance and saving faith in Jesus. As Messiah. But this won't happen until the day of the Lord judgment. Which involves a time of Jacob's trouble. Again, Jeremiah spoke to this. Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Alas, for the day is great. So that none is like it. This this unparalleled time of tribulation that will come upon the world. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is right in the middle of it. They got major problems as the whole world is coming against them. But then repentance takes place. But he shall be saved out of it. In this context of unparalleled trouble, Jacob will be saved out of it because they finally will turn to Jesus. Well, consistently the prophets show the pattern of great trouble and tribulation for Israel. But then in the end they are saved and restored. This is the consistent testimony of Scripture. The tragic note of desolation, that is the emphasis here at the end of Matthew 23, segues into the great prophecy of the end of the age in Matthew 24 and 25 which Jesus gave privately to his disciples. I think to really appreciate Matthew 24, you have to really study Matthew 23. So, bless you, you've been here. And it would seem that Jesus' words about desolation perhaps evoke the disciples' two-pronged question in Matthew 24, 3 that lead into the Olivet Discourse concerning end-time events that culminate in the Second Coming. Now, by way of application as we wrap up here, One thing we can take from this text is that before God, people are accountable for what they do with Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate issue. You know, 1 John 5, 12 says, he who has the son has life, and he who does not have the son does not have life. I mean, in the end of the day, it's all about Jesus. And you either have him or you don't have him. There are those who welcome his invitation to find shelter in him. And then there are those who are not willing. They have a problem with the will. They're not willing to quote Jesus. In the end, there are those who accept Christ as Lord and Savior, and there are those who refuse Him. This is the issue in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of belief. He came to His own. What was the problem? His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe him. so you got those who did not receive him, and those who did receive him. You go on into chapter three, following the most famous verse, John three sixteen. Whoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. But then it says in verse seventeen, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. God sent Jesus for salvation. That's His intention. What's the problem? Well, here's the issue. Verse 18. He who believes in Him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? 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 Why is he condemned? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The last invitation in the Bible is found in Revelation twenty two seventeen, 17, which reads, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. You know, it's a, the bride is the church. And the Spirit's working in conjunction with the bride. We're giving the external invitation through the gospel going forth. The Spirit's working in hearts. The Spirit in the brain. What's the invitation? Come. Let him who hears say, Come. Let him who thirsts, Come. Whoever desires, you gotta wanna. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. You can't say it's not offered, it is. The problem is not that there's no invitation. The invitation to come is broadcast far and wide wherever the gospel is shared. And then the issue becomes, what will people do with it? People have to desire to take what is offered. They have to want it. You got to want to And no one can do it for you. True story. Elizabeth Barrett was severely hurt in a childhood accident. This caused her parents to kind of unduly make over her. But then as she came to maturity, she decided that she wanted to marry Robert Browning in 1846. And her parents strongly disapproved. I'm not sure they would have approved of anybody. But they strongly disapproved. Well, after the wedding, the Browning sailed for Italy where they lived the rest of their lives. Even though her parents disowned her, Elizabeth continued to write them almost every week. After 10 years of writing, she received a large box in the mail. Inside were all the letters that she had sent to her parents, and not even one of them had been opened. Today, those letters are considered among the most beautiful in classical English literature. If only her parents had been open to read them. But alas, they were unwilling. And eventually the door closed on that relationship forever because they were unwilling. And so it is with God. You know what the Bible is? It's a love letter. It's a series of love letters. we got 66 of them. It's God's message. It's an invitation. Whosoever will can come. How persistently he reaches out. But if he is persistently spurned, there comes a time when it's too late. And people are left in their desolation, alone, forsaken, abandoned. That is why the Bible says, strong urgency. Now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. It's why the Bible says, today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As the gospel invitation has gone out, what's your response? Will you accept Christ as Lord and Savior? Will you believe on him? Or are you unwilling? Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Come. Let's stand and have our closing song.